The Optimal Life. Andrew Thorpe King. That's a powerful you, name, man. Thank you. Thank you. That's a very, very powerful. That's like you got big shoes to fill. That like, sounds like an emperor's type name. <laughs> Your parents yeah. must have been really confident in you, I'll tell you. It's royal for sure. I don't know about emperor, but king, yes. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So with the name so powerful, why are you such a serial failure? <laughs> That's a great question. I think there's power in failure. So I just wrote a whole book about that. Um, you know, I think probably there are things that I learned throughout my 20s and 30s that have shaped me to be a better man now uh, and to be more perceptive and have more wisdom and to live a fuller and wider life. I don't think any of the, the I don't think any of that would really be instilled or installed in me the way it is had it not been for some of the the the, um, the crucibles of, of failure experiences that I went through in my 20s and my 30s. Let's get into some of that because everyone loves a comeback story and you've had more than one. So uh, let's talk about some of the failures, some of the shortcomings, some of the things that have caused you a little heartache and pain in dark moments in your life. Let's go through some of the big ones. You mentioned in your 20s they started. What was the first big one for you? I think the first big one for me was probably um, – it was probably the, the, the around 2007, 2008. Um, I had transitioned from um, being an employee in the music industry, working for a very, like a record label uh, and then also for a, a distributor – and had been building up my own record labels at night on the side for quite some time. It hit an inflection point of success that kind of caused, you know, some pressure on my capacity between my day job and running my record labels. Day job essentially being in the music industry, getting a paid education in what I was doing. Um, and I had some success on a couple records. Uh, and so I went out on my own. And in doing that, within a few years followed by the, the, the good success that propelled me into self-employment, I then hit some turbulence that I was not prepared for, had not really built redundancy or scaffolding into my life to, to uh, allow me to safely get through. Uh, Overinvested in some records, the market shifted very quickly from physical uh, to digitization uh, in a way that short-term was very detrimental to me, long-term was actually amazing. Uh, and through all of that, um, you know, I had financed a lot of the record labels activity on loans that had personal guarantees. Uh, and I got to a point where no matter what I tried, every way I tried to, to pivot or, or restructure things, um, I had to, in the end, make a decision. And that decision was to essentially declare personal bankruptcy. And at let, the me time ask you, let me ask you real quick, Andrew. Um, you mentioned short term, it was a disaster. When you said it went from the records to digit digital were you was that in the era where there was like napster first came onto the scene or was this something else it was the uh the nascent years of itunes downloads which was still like just exhaust it was still like you know under 10 percent of revenue uh, at first but that then began to quickly change uh, and in that change you still had to like really engage with the physical model. So you're shipping out a lot of physical product. You're still dealing with, with the, the high return fees that came if they didn't sell on the shelves in the first three months. Uh, you're still, you know, paying to play with all the, the big record stores, the Best Buy, the Tower Records with, um, you know, um, 
uh, listening stations and end cap uh, and all that. <coughs> and, um, you know, as that began to crumble, you still had to engage with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tower Records went out of business. That was 25% of my sales. There was just a number of things that were shifting too quickly. Uh, and I was in a, a vulnerable spot given uh, being over leveraged. And so when you realized, okay, I need to now do, what was it, a chapter seven, chapter 11 or something? Else? Yeah, this was, uh, it was a personal one. So it was chapter seven, seven, which meant I really retained the businesses, even though they weren't worth anything at the time. And I did not know that they would be worth something in the future, but but they are, they have been. Uh, but at the time, uh, they weren't. And so there was really nothing. So do. how do you come to that conclusion? I have to file because isn't that for an entrepreneur? That's a very tough thing to have to admit. So do you remember what was that final straw where you're like, who pushed you? Who gave you the advice? How did you come to the conclusion this was the route to go? So just to step back a little bit for your listeners and your viewers, uh, we are talking about my book, Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentic. So I actually touch on this in the introduction as I kind of uh, get vulnerable about some of the failures that uh, punctuated my life and led me to writing this book. And, you know, there was essentially a day after consulting with many attorneys and, uh, you know, bankruptcy attorneys and talking to my accountant and looking at things, revenue, all of that. Um, I made that decision and it was it was soul crushing. Uh, you know, it was it, it, it was felt like the death of a dream, although I didn't know at the time it was really just going to be a mutation of the dream. But, um, you know, I ended up, I was, uh, I was drunk on my office floor by noon the day that I conceded to do that, you know, and, uh, and, they, what, and you alive. have a file, you have a file the size of a, your desk, right? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a whole, it's a whole shock. It's a, it's an eye opening thing going, I really am filing this thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the final admission of, Things are falling apart. Right. Now, were you married yet at that point? I was married. Yeah. Yeah. Which had to make things even that much more intense for you because you've got a partner that's sitting there relying on you to succeed and you've got to come home and say, honey, I filed chapter seven today. What were those conversations like? They were not fun. Um, and not only did I have, I had a wife and at the time, three children one very young child, I think my youngest was only, she was, you know, maybe one years old or something. And, um, mm. and one income, we were relying on one income and this was the income. Mm. Uh, and uh, being, there, there, so there was no unemployment to collect. There was still debt to contend with even after what was going to be discharged from bankruptcy. Uh, and, uh, you know, seven years of investing myself in the music business. And I found my place myself in a spot where I didn't know how I was going to you know, re-engage and get another job in the music industry uh, or reinvent myself and get a job elsewhere. So I was complete collapse in that sense. Complete. So collapse. you you're you feel ashamed, you feel humiliated, you feel defeated. You've got a wife, you got three children. And this was your livelihood for the entire family. That's a, a monumental stress moment in life. So the days weeks and months that preceded the day that you fell asleep on the floor drunk in the office how, how what mindset what did you do to pull yourself up um you know i relied a lot on my spirituality so i have a deep faith in god although in that time i was also susceptible to, to vices that were numbing the pain i mean again i was drunk in my office by noon that day and spent the rest of the afternoon 
uh, in a strip club because it was, you know, some facsimile of, uh, of love, some distraction. And, um, you know, but that didn't last too long. You know, I, I knew that I had to pick myself up. I had to get off the floor literally and, uh, figuratively. And I did that. And I think I did that by, um, just seeing the world as a wider place, thinking about how I could reinvent myself. And at the time I was, uh, I was working out at a gym where I knew a lot of high net, uh, net worth individuals and a lot of, uh, movers and shakers in the town I lived in and a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. And I just began networking and thinking about what can I do? How can I reinvent myself? Who do I know that might be able to give me a hand up? Uh, and, um, in the end I ended up, uh, doing financial planning, which again was no salary, salary, killer be killed. Uh, but because of that network that I had built up, I was able to build up a, an okay practice, uh, you know, at first that eventually failed too within a few years, but it at least sustained me for a couple of years and also gave me this long tail thread and in interest in finance and banking, went on to have online lending shops, uh, you know, a uh, lead generation company. And now I've been in financial technology, fintech banking, uh, working in the corporate world for over 10 years and it's been, you know, a wildly successful kind of like, um, you know, last thread of, of my banking and uh, financial services um, career while still doing stuff in the music industry, while still writing spy novels, while you know, writing this book and, and everything You else. You weren't ready to call, call it quits with the music. The music was your passion. It was. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of cigar are you smoking? This would be a My Father... Um, uh, Flor de las Antillas, one of my favorites, Sun Grown. What's the most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? It's a good question. I don't even remember what it was, but I have a buddy who has a humidor in his house and owns some cigar shops, and he smoked a hundred dollar cigar one night, and I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually somewhere in the uh, you know the, the ten to fifteen dollar range on the sticks I smoke. Nice. Uh, so, okay, so. How many years at that point when, when you went through, filed the bankruptcy and then how, how long were you married at that point? It was still probably a, maybe seven or eight years. Seven or like eight that. years. Okay. Yeah. Seven, eight years, three kids. And, yeah. uh, and then, and then as you're trying to figure it out and you're getting into the financial services and you're networking and you're uh, eating what you kill, um, is that taking a toll? Was that one of the things that started taking a toll on the marriage? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I think there was probably uh, a realization on my part over time, uh, particularly because we lived in a, a state and a city far away from either of our families. We were pretty much on an island that uh, the marriage from her perspective was pretty much based on um, being provided for. And so as that began to continue to be volatile, um, I, I think that, you know, that was reflected in our relationship. And uh, I was probably loving out of duty as opposed to uh, you know, having any sort of like real joyful, experiential, um, you know, relational love. Um, but I didn't see the difference back then. I see the difference now in hindsight, but back then I didn't see the difference. Uh, and so I think there was an, an erosion that I was blind to over time because I'm an optimist and mm. I'm a worker and, and I'm a workhorse. Um, but for sure, the marriage was beginning to crumble, even if I wasn't aware of it. That's sure, it. sure. So what's the final breaking point for you in the mirrors? Because that, of course, is, again, one of the other big one of those big milestones that you've had to overcome. What was what was the final straw? Uh, we had moved back east 
and um, I had uh, found my way into the online lending business for three or four years and uh, was doing quite well for quite some time um, and uh, can had built some scaffolding of, of multiple income sources, but that was the main one. Um, and um, I had a, 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 a business partner that um, we had a falling out with. We had, we had a, a necessary parting of ways uh, and uh, I, I resigned from my COO position um, and um, you know, sold my shares and essentially had to reorganize my income. And I think in that, in that time period is when uh, the marital unwind really began. And uh, it was shortly after that that we separated and began our divorce path. And really that's when I, I was maybe 39, almost 40 then. And that's when my life really, really opened up. And it was really kind of in that chaos that I leveraged that as an idea engine. And, and so many new things were born in my life that I write about in the book. Looking back on the marriage, was there something, a major theme looking back that you said to yourself, I could have done this differently. Maybe if I did this, the marriage would have been a little bit different. Did you ever feel that way? And if so, what was it? Um, yeah, but uh, both directly and indirectly. Indirectly, I, I probably I should have had um, a different approach to my work life. Um, I would have still taken risks, but I would have had more backup. Uh, and, and I do that more now. And I write about in the book, that's failure rule number four is build your thing one and thing two dependency, which is have a thing one enabler pursuit, which might be low meaning, but can sustain you and help you as you go after an aspirational thing two pursuit. Go through many examples of that in the book. And I think that probably would have stabilized the marriage, but it was still, it was still, um, you know, rotting underneath because I don't think she actually loved me for me. Uh, I think I really was, um, pardon the, uh, par pardon the, the bluntness, but I think I was really just a paycheck and a sperm donor. I think she just wanted children and somebody to pay for her to have children and not work. Mm. And, um, that sounds harsh, but I think it's the reality. And I think that's probably proven itself, itself out over time in terms of, um, life trajectories. And so um, I don't know that there was anything I really could have done except for maybe, um, you know, not going into it in the first place without uh, making sure it's built on a stronger foundation. And that's so hard to do for entrepreneurs, too, because and that's one of the things you talk about is entrepreneurs need to still find time for themselves. Right. And it's hard for guys to do that and check out of work and, and put work to the side and find time for themselves, their own well-being, their family. It's a tricky thing. So what is what is some of your advice on that? Yeah, so I write about that in the book, too. I mean, there's a chapter called Guard Your Inner Self, uh, which is just really about this idea of leaders, whether you're leading a family, leading a business or you're just a, a solopreneur who's kind of leading your own efforts. It's this idea that you really need to block out a surplus of, uh, of solitude in order to really process things, to recalibrate your vision, uh, to you know, uh, make sure that you're keeping your eyes open to any shifting in, in your life and, and how you're going to you know, reposition yourself in it. And to make sure that you're always really pegged to your core why on why you're doing things, right? Uh, and that you're finding ways to make sure you're aligning the highest use of your talents uh, in the way that you uh, express yourself in your work life. What's another common thing that you see people struggling with, especially in the business world, whether they're entrepreneurs, creatives, authentics, this is all part of your book. 
What's uh what's a, a a general rule of thumb that you say, hey, yeah, across the board, this is something that most of these guys struggle with or gals. I, I think it might be that tunnel vision of uh, being so passionate about your work, especially if you're an entrepreneur or a creative, where your work literally is an expression many times of of your deepest interests, you know, your deepest soul instincts, uh, particularly if there's an artistic element to it, you know, it really is an expression of yourself. And having that tunnel vision where um, you can have these important relationships in your life that you're not really paying attention to, you're not really observing, you're not tending to, or, or you're not even, you know, really, you know, realizing if they're going awry uh, and not having balance. Mm -hmm. um, not taking you can't make changes if you don't know what's, if you don't spot the problem, you're not thinking about changing anything. So That's the right. first step is right. You got to recognize what's going on around you, which is hard to do when you're caught up in the day to day. Yeah, and it, and it, particularly if you are a runner and gunner, if you're a workhorse, if you're like if you're if you kind of adrenalize every day and you're addicted to the the feeling of movement, the feeling of, of progress towards an end goal, and uh, to stop that, it feels like you're stopping momentum. But the reality is, to stop that is good for you because you can digest. You can see, you know, you can let old thinking die, new thinking emerge, uh, and you can can figure out sometimes a more efficient way or even a higher goal to pivot to. Mm. So, okay, so you're late 30s, you get divorced, and you mentioned through that chaos, you found the light. You found the light at the other end of the tunnel. Dig into that a little bit. What did you find and how did you find it? Yeah. So at, at that time, essentially, I was living in a hotel room for a period of time, no office to go to by day, no home to go to by night, temporarily separated from separated from my children, you know, and I could have just wallowed in alcoholism, no stranger alcohol. I love my bourbon. But uh, instead, what I did is I just look at the adjacent possibles in my life. And uh, I invoked what I call the divinity of purpose, uh, which is a, a phrase coined by Jamie Josta, singer for Hatebreed, from one of the songs by Hatebreed. That song, I'm a lover of hardcore punk and metal music, that really built me during that time. And I was looking for how to invoke uh, purpose in my life and restructure and reorganize my life. Uh, and so five things were birthed out of that period. Uh, I finished my first spy novel, Blaze Operation Persian Trinity. Uh, I ended up um, becoming a consultant in the online lending space. Uh, one of those partnerships led to a proper uh, lead generation company, which became very lucrative. I also reimagined myself and became a, a corporate fintech banker in that time, which for me was a big deal because I, I was in, uh, you know, really the online lending space and the payday lending space, which uh, has you know a lot of controversy around it. And it was really like going from being a porn star to a regular actor to actually end up getting in the corporate banking space. Uh, and also at the same time, I... Uh, reinvested in my record labels, released some great records uh, by bands like Booze and Glory and the Coffin Cats. Uh, and uh, that's also when I really began working on the manuscript for Failure Rules. And that was um, end of 2013, early 2014, somewhere around there. Uh, seven years later, the book is done and uh, out in the world and, and doing well. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about it on you know two or three podcasts per week and getting a lot of great feedback. And you know, after multiple iterations, you know, as Hemingway said, the first draft is always shit. Uh, it really revealed its structure and it became <laughs> what I think is a really powerful set of stories, both my own and lots of case studies from a variety of people from a variety of walks of life. Um, I mean, everybody from 
you know, investor James Altucher to Lemmy Kilmister from the, from Motorhead to billionaire Sarah Blakely to The Rock to, uh, you know, ex-gang leader Elgin James. So I just laid all kinds of case studies in there to kind of buoy the lessons uh, and, and kind of bolster the five rules of failure and, and what I think I've discovered. Failure rules. And we'll link that in the show notes, guys. The book is linked in the show notes. The five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. Uh, he's showing it here on the screen as well. So let's go through it fairly quickly, but take us through, uh, Andrew, the five rules. What exactly are the five rules? And then we'll maybe give a little a few nuggets of each one. Why don't you take us through one through five? Sure. Failure rule number one is failure purifies. It's the idea that the phoenix must burn to emerge, that, you know, when we're going through failures, it's really easy. Like I did that one day when I, I conceded to bankruptcy to be an emotional participant in my event and get drunk before noon on the, on, and lay on the floor. But really, you know, what we need to try to do is be um, objective observers of our failure events instead of emotional participants. And that's difficult, but we need to find our way to that space as soon as possible and, and look at our lives and say, okay, this is happening. I may have wanted to avoid this. There may have been some things that I could have done to avoid it, but it's here. What might I be able to pull from this failure that is beneficial for, for the next version of myself? You know, mm -hmm. again, what old thinking is dying? What new thinking can emerge? What old ways of being need to be peeled off me? What new ways of being do I need to challenge myself uh, to lean into and think about, um, you know, what that next version of yourself, what is the waste that has accumulated in you and your spirit and your habits that needed to die? And this mm. event is a symbol of that, right? And if you're looking at it that way, I think often you'll be able to discover, oh yeah, this is no longer going to be part of me and that's good. And now I can seek to, to, to fill that with something that is, um, you know, better to help me move forward. So, don't lay there. Basically, don't lay there and sulk and don't play victim. You can lick your wounds for a period of time, but recognize the situation, accept the situation. And what's the lessons learned? That's what it sounds yeah. like you're talking about. Yeah. So a good example I write about in the book around failure rule number one is um, professional bowler Tom Smallwood. Um, there, there's a show recently, uh, on CBS with, uh, comedian Pete Holmes, who, who plays Smallwood in a story, but he has this quote where he says, um, you know, getting laid off was the worst thing that happened to me, but it led to the best results. And his story is he was working at the Ford plant in Michigan, uh, working class blue collar guy got laid off. Uh, and in that failure space where he wanted to marry his now wife and he wanted to get engaged, uh, had no paycheck, you know, it really is, he heard his internal spirit voice and he could really hear. Uh, and see and get an opportunity to chase after his true calling so he could begin his calling journey. Might not have been able to do that if he wasn't in that failure space, that empty space where there's more introspection. Yes. Uh, and so he, he scraped up $1,500 while still looking for a practical you know, day job. He scraped up $1,500 to go enter a, a bowling tournament. Uh, long story short, it actually led to him becoming a professional bowler uh, from the time he got laid off to the time that he got recalled back to his uh, job at the Ford plant, he was literally able to tell them on the phone, hey, I'm sorry, I can't take that job. I got a new job. I'm a professional bowler. And if you want, you can see me on ESPN tomorrow. Wow. And that all happened in that failure space. And I think because of that failure space, that really induced that introspection for him to have the, the boldness to see that path and take that risk. And so it's stories like that that really kind of identify the purification of failure. That's beautiful. Okay, number two. Nothing is safe. So it's the idea that your dreams aren't safe. Uh, you know, if you're chasing after something that you think is safe, 
if you really look at it, chances are there's fault lines all over the place and it's not really safe. Even your comfortable job with, um, you know, good benefits and, and everything else, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not knocking that, uh, but it's not really safe either. Uh, you know, and so this comes from a, a, a you know, quote from let me kill Mr. of Motorhead. Um, and he was, um, talking about the, uh, terrorist attack on the Ariana Grande, uh, concert, uh, in Manchester, UK, uh, Motorhead was scheduled to play shortly thereafter. The show was canceled. Uh, and he's being interviewed by Loudwire magazine and they, they were asking, let me, you know, well, you know, if, if the, uh, if the authorities in the venue would have let you played, would you have played? And he's like, yeah, hell yeah, I would have. And they're like, well, and I'm paraphrasing, well, well, why? It wouldn't be safe. And he went on this rant about, about safety and our, our, our obsession with safety. And the idea is not so much that you want to be risky intentionally, that you want to do something that are, that's stupid and dangerous. It's the idea that so often we limit ourselves and we muzzle our internal spirit voices and we don't go after the things that we all go after to truly manifest our highest unique you know, being in the world because we are overvaluing safety, where safety really ought to be measured uh, against competing priorities and does not always fall as first. Sometimes That's... maybe it is first, but so many other times it's not. And I do believe that a lot of people you know, are like that, the, the Henry David Thoreau quote, living lives of quiet desperation, which and it's been popularized by Joe Rogan, but it's very true. I think a lot of people, they're so much clinging to safety that they, I think they actually live lives that are that, that are numbing, uh, where they're actually getting sick in some ways, uh, because they're not doing anything to really chase after adventure or, you know, really using their and and that gift. ties all into this fear that people have of holding they're holding themselves back. That's right. right. They're, they're yeah. afraid to just pull the trigger. They're waiting for the quote unquote perfect time. Yep. There's no such thing. There isn't. No, it's ready, fire, aim most of the time, or at least ready, approximate your aim, fire and adjust your aim in flight, you know, exactly after on that too, using Jesse Isler as, as a case study, Jesse um, Isler, the, uh, the runner, right. Uh, he's a rapper. He owns, uh, you know, the uh, NBA team. Uh, yeah. He's also I think author. he does like some trail, like some crazy mir- uh, trail. Runs. Does, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. By David Goggins uh, did a book about it. Yeah. Um, what was that thing? I saw a uh, cliff uh, with the Jim Norton case study. Yeah, yeah. So Jim Norton, you know, just talking about, you know, nothing is safe or just talking about his uh, his path as, as a comedian. Right. He, um, you know, I, I think it was probably the video. Luck is the residue of design that I did. Uh, and it's just about designing your way towards your your highest, you know, North Star dream or aspiration, aspirational goal. And for him as a comedian, he was talking to the James Altucher podcast about he intentionally limited his options in life and didn't want to get a job that he might end up liking that would soften his desire to chase it to become a comedian. So he would get really like boring jobs or dead end jobs, like driving a forklift where at least his mind could be free and he could be thinking about his bits. So wow. he like intentionally limited his options to hyper-focus on this goal of becoming a comedian. Oh, that's uh, extremely interesting. Yeah. That's a really powerful twist that most people don't think of. So he looked at his, I'm going to stay miserable intentionally. Yeah, intentionally. So I so I have the burning desire to do one thing and one thing only eventually, which is yeah. be a comedian. Yeah. Be an entertainer. Yeah. Wow. Okay, which number I'm three. Saying, I'm not saying I advocate that path, but I think it's a very <laughs> interesting take. Yeah. Dream uh, example. It, it reminds me of Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone talks about how he was miserable selling cars. 
He was a yeah. car salesman and he stayed miserable because he was trying to chase something else. Uh, okay. Rule. Uh, so, so nothing's safe, you know, yep. there's never the perfect time. Go out and get it. What's number three. Okay, rule number three is money is spiritual, uh, which is the idea that, you know, if you're staying away from the, the failure edge toward territories of envy and greed, uh, which I view as malevolent twin siblings, manifestations of the same spirit, and you're seeing money as an agnostic tool, but has large spiritual capacity, and you're seeing it as a thank you note, uh, essentially that every transaction is, uh, you know, uh, you know, a placed value on something that measures your gratitude for for something uh, that money can be a force multiplier. It can be a, an enabler of blessings. It can be something that can really help lift people out of poverty. It's not something to be worshipped. It's not something to be reviled. That money itself does have a spiritual capacity. And I think because our lives are very much connected to transactions at every level throughout the day, all the time, whether we like it or not, uh, that we need to think about how we think about money and to view it as something that is a, a, a tool loaded with power of a spiritual nature to bless ourselves and others when used properly, I think is, is a very helpful mindset to get us out of failure territories and from a charitable standpoint to help to, to help us to enable others uh, to lift themselves out. Beautiful. So I go through, yeah. Yeah, I go through, I go through an example in the book of, um, of, uh, you know, a time. So I, I used to work at White Glove Car Wash when I was younger. I dropped out of college and I worked at a car wash. Uh, and so very connected to that work. I learned so much while, while I was working there. Um, and so 25 years later, I got off work at the bank one day and I went and uh, got my car washed. And this guy, Prince, his name was Prince, just like Purple Rain kind of Prince thing, you know. And, uh, you know, it was, it was freezing. It was February. The quitting bell rang. It was, you know, about five o'clock. He kept working. He was doing an amazing job. And I just had this spontaneous kind of like uh, uh, feeling of gratitude. Ran to the ATM machine, got him a tip that was four times the amount of the car wash, you know, and uh, just had this spontaneous kind of like, mm. you know, moment of, of using money in a spiritual manner. So that's one of the examples that I go through talking about money being a thank you note. And, and I would assume that gratitude for somebody like you comes much easier than maybe somebody that grew up with the silver spoon because you have fallen, you have laid flat, you and, have been and, at rock bottom. And I've been on the recipient end of that, of that gratitude where, where, where um, money has been that hand up uh, and, and uh, you know, has, you know, produced so much gratitude within me for sure. hundred percent. Absolutely. So, okay. Three spiritual number four. So this is what I talked about before. It's the thing one and thing two dependency. So uh, the idea that your thing one is your enabler pursuit that gives you some structure, some scaffolding as you're chasing after your aspiration, your North Star, your, your thing two pursuit, which again is not safe. So it's best to at least try to make it as safe as possible and build some structure. The, the classic easiest example is just banging down a nine to five and side hustling something, right? But then there's all these other creative ways to, to use this dependency. So I go through the example of uh, uh, this guy, Chris Wren, yeah, he's the founder of Bridge Nine Records, uh, an independent punk rock hardcore record label. Uh, and, uh, you know, to underwrite the first 16, 17 releases on his record label, his passion, uh, instead of just he couldn't get a bank loan for it. And he wasn't going to make enough money working a regular job to be able to fund this. So he started another business that was higher profit. Some would say this is uh, chasing good money after bad, but he was more interested in his high meaning a pursuit with the record label than this low meaning pursuit, but he started a, a merchandise company, Yankee Suck, and sold all the merchandise to, to Red Sox fans. 
and made a lot of money, used that profit, underwrite the first 16, 17 releases of his record label. 25 years later, you know, his record label still stands strong and he has other business interests and that kind of thing. But that's that's an example of, you know, creative example of, of a thing one, thing two dependency model. Okay. And then what's the fifth and final? Failure rule number five is you are not your failures, which is arguably the most powerful and important uh, rule. It's the idea that you really need to detach from the optics of your failures, decouple your identity from your failure events. That's the only way you can really move forward. And you need to realize that, you know, while you still may need to deal with the consequences and messiness of certain failures, particularly if it's an ethical failure, that you are not your failure and you can resketch your life. And so, um, you know, go through many examples of this in the book. Um, one of them is um, Elgin James, who was uh, used to be the leader of Violent Street Gang, uh, FSU uh, in Boston. He's actually the half brother of Jocko Willink. Uh, and so Elgin, um, he, um, you know, was in the straight edge kind of puritanical gang where they would beat up drug dealers at, at uh, punk hardcore shows. And and uh, it turned into something very negative. He ended up getting arrested on an extortion charge. Uh, and then on the day of his sentencing, uh, he talked about the juxtaposition between his old life and his new life. He had renounced the violence by that time. By the time he was sentenced, he had moved out to L.A. with his girlfriend and chased after his true calling. You know, he detached from the optics of failure, reinvented himself, and he chased after his dream of becoming a screenwriter. And literally on the day he was sentenced, after letters were written to the judge by his new mentor, Robert Redford, Robert Redford and some other actors, he got a deal with Universal Pictures. He went on to do a couple films. And then uh, most recently, he's he's the writer uh, for um, Mayans MC on FX, the spinoff to Sons of Anarchy. Um, mm. So his story of you know, appropriately kind of paying for his sins of his old life, that ethical failure, but at the same time, not pegging himself to that identity, reinventing himself, chasing after, you know, um, you know, his dream, which is the highest use of his talents, the most unique use, uh, and uh, becoming who he became. So that would be an example of that. Incredible. The five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. There's the book again. Um, what do you mean, though, by authentics? Explain that. Yeah, that's kind of a word I invented, I think, but it's really pegged to this idea uh, of, of, you know, two other uh, terms I use in the book, and I have a definition of terms, you know, listening to your internal spirit voice, that quiet voice inside all of us that I believe is there, that really kind of gives us direction uh, during pivotal decisions, uh, and, and most specifically on how to uh, follow our calling journey, you know, that path that we're uh, meant to take to, uh, again, uh, manifest our highest usefulness in the world, uh, most unique usefulness. Uh, and if you're doing that, then I think you are living out your most authentic life. So being an authentic is, is mostly pegged to um, finding a way to hear that inner voice and see what steps you need to take to be uh, the most unique, useful um, being you can be as you go through your work life. And Remember, now here you are all these years later, a successful entrepreneur. You've invested in many spaces, online lending, fitness, lead generation, uh, music. Yep. Do you have a favorite area that you like to invest in or are you open to multiple? I'm open to multiple, definitely open to multiple. Uh, but finance has been the most lucrative. I mean, that's probably no, uh, no, no secret. Uh, other stuff has been more passion projects, even though there's a financial element. Um, but, 
you know, I think being a writer is probably something that's been core to me throughout, uh, obviously. And so I continue, I, I, I intend to continue writing books. Um, you know, Beautiful. Uh, Andrew Thorpe King, where do you want people to find you? We'll link your book here in the show notes. Where do you want people to find you online, social, et cetera? Yep. You can find me at andrewthorpeking.com. No E at the end of Thorpe. Uh, from there, you can get linked to my Instagram page. Follow me there at Andrew Thorpe King. YouTube channel, some great videos there that kind of, uh, you know, echo the themes of the book in a new way. That's at Andrew Thorpe King. There's a free failure rules mini course on the site, as well as a merch page with some killer merch from Soul and Fire Supply Company, which is a company I started uh, again to echo the themes of the book. Uh, and go buy the book on Amazon or anywhere you find books online, including a kick-ass audio book. Yeah, the book's very highly rated, guys. Check it out. Highly recommend. Uh, I've got one final question for you. Looking back, would you change anything? No, wouldn't change anything. Doesn't mean I wouldn't do different if I, do it different if I could, but it was all meant to happen the way it happened. It's okay to run to failure. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay to embrace it, but you still ought to prepare for it. It's best to think about it premeditatively. So that's why I wrote this book. Thank you so much, man. Wishing you continued successes. Thank you, sir. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on.